Hey, Bankless Nation, I'm very excited about the episode today. David is out, and this episode gets technical at times, so I have ETH researcher Justin Drake, whom I'm sure many of you know. He's co-hosting with me today. Some context as we get into this episode. So we did a previous episode a few weeks ago called The Sci-Fi Roadmap to Ethereum. And in that episode, Justin Drake described the end game for Ethereum. And he said this, we snarkify everything. In today's episode, we explore exactly what that means and how we do it. How do we snarkify everything? Our guest today is Brian Redford. He is the co-founder of what might be the world's first Type 1 ZK EVM. And if you don't know what that means, that's fine. Neither did I as we we're getting into this episode. And it turns out that building a Type 1 ZK EVM is an important part of delivering what Justin Drake called an enshrined roll-up inside of Ethereum. More on that in just a minute. But before we get in, just want to mention something quick from our friends and sponsors over at SAFE. SAFE is the multi-sig wallet we recommend for crypto. And you've heard us talk about smart contract wallets many times, how they're going to 10x the crypto wallet experience. We definitely believe that's true. And SAFE recently proposed their modular open source SAFE core protocol as a standard for the industry so that we can all move forward and transition to the smart contract wallet future. And they want you to check it out. So there's a link for the devs in the show notes. Safe really believes this is an opportunity to create a unified standard to catapult smart contract accounts onto the EVM. The standard itself is unopinionated and, and vendor agnostic and maintains interoperability and smart contract diversity. So go check it out. And also to check out, Safe is organizing the first ever conference dedicated to smart contract wallets and account abstraction. That happens the second week of December. There'll be a link in the show notes to go register for that as well. So thanks to Safe for building into the frontier. All right, speaking of the frontier, back to Ethereum enshrined rollups. So why are we having this conversation and why now? The compute era scaled with Moore's law but the blockchain era scales with something differently. It scales with cryptography, specifically cryptographic breakthroughs like ZK snarks. And all of this ZK snark stuff, the snarkifying of the EVM, it's all happening a lot faster than any of us previously thought. It's happening so fast that a project called Risk Zero just came on our radar last week, and they've already produced a working version of the world's first ZK snarkified type one EVM. What kinds of things could this unlock in the future? Why is this important? Well, what if we could convert an optimistic rollup to a ZK rollup? What if we could upgrade Ethereum's layer one from a single threaded EVM model to a multi-threaded EVMs so that compute was virtually limitless and free? What if ETH validators themselves had the ability to run from something as small as a smartwatch? All of these are possible unlocks with this technology. This is crazy cool, deep stuff. Down the crypto rabbit hole we go, and it gets technical at times, but it's absolutely worth holding on for the ride. This is crazy cool stuff, and we're going deep down the rabbit hole today, and this gets technical at times, but I think it's absolutely worth it to hold on for the ride because this is key to understanding how blockchains actually work and how they scale. And in so understanding, I think this type of thing can help you avoid bad investments and dead ends, and there are a lot of those out in the space as well. We're going to get right to the episode with Brian and Justin, but before we do, I want to thank the sponsors that made this possible, including our number one recommended crypto exchange for 2023, Kraken. Go check them out. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, 
account. Join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1 with flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now, Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Layer 3, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, enterprise, or user, Arbitrum Orbit it lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. So visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app with Arbitrum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Bankless Nation, I am super excited to introduce you to Brian Redford. He's the co-founder of a ZK EVM project that we're going to find out a bit more about on today's episode called Risk Zero. Brian, welcome to Bankless. Thanks. Glad to be here. Also excited to be joined uh, yet again on Bankless by Justin Drake. He's an Ethereum uh, researcher and repeat Bankless guest. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. But I guess this time maybe as a host asking some technical questions. Yeah, how's it feel? The tables have turned. So Justin, uh, I'm gonna tap you in as my co-host today. So David is out and we're gonna talk about this, uh, the next generation, ZK EVMs. So I think we're talking to Brian about the world's first maybe ZK EVM, that's a type one ZK EVM. And I'm not even sure the words that I'm saying or what they mean. So we'll, we'll absolutely need to define that. But um, you know, David's out right now, so Justin, you're gonna you're gonna tap in and help me with this. I feel like this is a continuation though of a conversation that you had with him on ETHCC, and I think Bankless listeners may have listened to an episode entitled uh, "Ethereum's Sci-Fi Roadmap" or the Sci-Fi Roadmap to Ethereum, in which there was this really interesting part, and I love that episode by the way, where you were describing this uh the ability of us in the future of ethereum to snarkify the evm on on kind of mainnet on the base layer and that sounded really interesting to me and i think that ties into the conversation that that we're about to have so tee this up for us if you will justin as a continuation on that conversation i know this we're talking about sci-fi ethereum future stuff but uh what does it mean to snarkify the evm and how does that tie into the conversation we're about to have with Brian today? Right. So big picture, we're actually going to snarkify all of Ethereum. And there's two big components that need to be snarkified. One is the EVM, 
which is this virtual machine which processes Ethereum transactions. And then the other part is the beacon chain. Now, once we've snarkified these two things, we'll be in a position where compute won't ever be a bottleneck for Ethereum. So it means that, for example, as a validator, you won't have to really have beefy CPUs. So you'll be able to be a validator on your smartwatch. Um, if you're building bridges between L1s, you'll be able to have another L1 verify the state of Ethereum without having to redo all the computations themselves. It also has implications for light clients, for what we call enshrine rollups, which are like super high security rollups. Um, and when the, the words type one uh, EVM come to mind, type one ZKVM, it really kind of gets me excited as, as a researcher because it was a, a kind of a piece of sci-fi engineering that was thought to be, you know, five to 10 years into the future. But it looks like, well, there's several teams working on them. Uh, there's, for example, uh, Tyco, um, and, and there's, there's Risk Zero now. And uh, it, it looks like the engineering will just be ready so much sooner. So we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and that has some big implications in terms of, of applications for Ethereum, both at layer two, but also what I'm excited about, which is the layer one. So what you just described here, Justin, is uh, is kind of the holy grail. And I, I still want to spend some more time with you right here, just fleshing this out and making sure that, that we understand this going to the episode, because it sets the context for the rest of the conversation with, with Brian and, and Risk Zero here. So the light at the end of, end of the tunnel, or what I just referred to as, as the holy grail, snarkifying all of Ethereum, what this means is we used, get to use the spooky math you know, the, the, the crypto magic ZK math that you've you described so eloquently many times on, on the Bankless episode. And um, what we get, the prize that's held out to us is the ability, first of all, you said to validate, be a validator on something as small as like a smartphone or an Apple Watch. So, okay, is, is that really what we're talking about? So, of course, one of the, the end goals and the end goal, the entire purpose of Ethereum is, uh, you know, for it to maintain, for it to remain decentralized. And that me means ideally anybody with a basic consumer level uh, computer can validate transactions on the Ethereum um, mainnet. And right now the, the requirements for doing that are, are somewhat higher than just a smartphone or a smartwatch, but this will decrease the requirements, the hardware profile in order to validate transactions on the Ethereum uh, mainnet and also to stake. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. So anytime you have a human that ends up wanting to interact with, with Ethereum, they need to interface through a full node. And there's some complications here because running a full node is not something that you can necessarily easily do on your phone. And it's not something that the average individual, individual will want to do. And it's something that every single validator has to do if they want to become a validator. So there's this barrier to entry. And more often than not today, for the vast majority of users, we end up patching this technical barrier to entry with some level of centralization. So for example, if you're using MetaMask, you're going to be connecting to Infura nodes that are kind of running the full nodes on your behalf. And so there's some amount of trust that you as a user are placing into MetaMask. 
So once we have a type 1 ZKVM, once we've snarkified the VM and all of Ethereum, we're going to be in a position where the user will be able to interact with Ethereum with much, much, much less hardware. Like um, a phone or a smartwatch will be able to get best-in-class access with best-in-class security, best-in-class latency, all with very, very little hardware. That's, uh, does this imply anything for a bandwidth as well? Will this decrease the bandwidth requirements or will bandwidth kind of become the, the constraint here now? Right, great question. So consensus kind of solves two problems. One of them is execution and the other one is data availability. Snarks is kind of this magic technology that removes computation as a bottleneck within the context of consensus. And it turns out we have another magic technology for data availability called data availability sampling. Now, neither of these are really in production right now. But once we have both in production, you won't have to pay the cost of computation and you will have to pay a very, very minimal cost for the, from the bandwidth perspective. So you won't even need to download the Ethereum blocks. All you have to do is make these small queries for chunks of blocks. And that's going to be enough to guarantee uh, that you're on the canonical Ethereum chain. So data availability uh, sampling as well. That's that's a core upgrade of what I think uh, people are calling dank sharding as well. Not proto dank sharding, as I recall, but but dank sharding, which which uh, could occur later in the future. Exactly right. Um, so we're looking at technologies, you know, two, three, maybe four or five years into the future, which in a way will transform accessibility of Ethereum for users. Um, and in the end game, accessing Ethereum will be just as easy as accessing any other website. And you'll have guarantees, just like on the website today, you have this cap lock, um, sorry, this, uh, this lock uh, and HTTPS, you'll have a similar lock saying you're really connected to the real Ethereum and you'll have to have done almost no work and you'll have, have to download it, download almost no data. And right. ZK... And trust, trust nobody also, unlike the current kind of lock where you actually have to trust the sort of signature verifiers for those it's, signature issues. ZK technology is the thing that, that makes this this all possible. It's, what's very interesting is I, I know there, there are people who talk about um, kind of like compute scaling in blockchains via Moore's law, and, and that's true. But where we really get the like kind of the massive uh, scalability is more with like cryptography breakthroughs. That that is something I've I've learned as part of like exploring the roadmaps and being in this industry um, for, uh, for for many years now. Is is these cryptographic breakthroughs are the key sort of step function breakthroughs that allow us to actually scale this technology. One one other quick question for you, um, Justin, before we get to Brian to kind of describe what what he's actually working on, what we're doing here. The, what does this imply for maybe uh, scalability on Ethereum mainnet. So we talked about lowering the compute requirements to be a validator, which is fantastic. That is a you know further decentralization unlock. How about transactions per second on the Ethereum layer one mainnet? Does this have any impact on that as well? Fantastic question. So once we've snarkified the EVM, we'll be in a position where we can greatly increase the gas limit and potentially even remove the gas limit for computation specifically. And the reason is that the gas limit is an anti-denial of service vector, whereby when you receive a block, you wanna be able to fully verify that the block is valid on the order of one second. 
And so if there's too many transactions in that block, then it's going to take more than you know, one second to validate. But the magical thing about snarks is that the verification time of a snark is on the order of one millisecond. And so you can take a block that's kind of arbitrarily large with arbitrarily many transactions and arbitrary much transaction uh, execution and know that the execution is correct within a constant amount of time, which is only one millisecond. So what does that imply then? So if Ethereum right now supports like 16 transactions per second, and we're, we're scaling that out via rollups. And last time I checked on L2B, we're about, if you count all of the kind of rollups combined in that, we're about 5x 16 transactions per second, something like that. And that's the, the entirety of Ethereum right now. We're, we're not... We're not handling a visa level throughput at, at this point in time, it's, it's safe to say. But what you just said about kind of uh, you know, finality or, or confirmation times at the millisecond level uh, you know, validation verification here, what does that imply for mainnet throughput, Justin? Right, so what it means is that there's gonna be a partial comeback of the layer one. So I think the spotlight is gonna shift to L2s for the next few years. And there's going to be a lot of experimentation, a lot of innovation. And the layer one is really going to be lagging because we're extremely conservative and you know, we're frankly kind of slow um, for good reasons. Um, but once we are able to catch up from a technological standpoint with the L2s, well, the L1s will also have some of the similar powers that the L2s provide. And so the L1 will, to an extent, be able to, to scale out one of the superpowers will mean that we can increase the gas limit. And there's something that's kind of explicitly put in Vitalik's uh, roadmap diagram. But another thing that we can do, and I think this is something that Vitalik will add in maybe the next iteration of the diagram, is that we can have an opcode within the EVM, which allows you to verify validity proofs, snarks of EVM blocks itself. So kind of the EVM is aware of itself and knows when another EVM block is valid. And what this allows us to do is have multiple instances of the EVM. Because ultimately, you can think of the EVM as being this single-threaded CPU or virtual machine. So it can only run on one core just to simplify. And so there's this in inherently sequential computation that's going on, which is a bottleneck for scalability. The EVM will never be able most likely to do a million transactions per second, just because we have this inherent bottleneck. And so the way that we scale out once we've reached all the gains by increasing the gas limit is by having multiple instances of the EVM. So this is gonna be EVM zero and then EVM one, EVM two. And the cool thing is that once we have this opcode, anyone can programmatically kind of create a new instance of the EVM. Wow, so this would become kind of Ethereum mainnet, the la the layer uh, the layer one, kind of our uh, multi core moment. Then, what's uh, what's kind of the analog? Is, are we like is it from four eighty six to Pentium? I don't <laughs> I don't know what we're doing here. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. We're going multi core. So for a very very long time, we've had these CPUs which were just one core, and then what we did is we ramped up the frequency of the CPUs. So it was like hundreds of megahertz and then one gigahertz and then 1.5, two, and then we, you know, to, nowadays we have, I don't know, three gigahertz CPUs. And you can't do like 30 gigahertz. And the reason is that the, the, the transistors just don't turn on and off fast enough. So there's this sequential bottleneck. And so the way that you scale is by scaling out vertically, uh, sorry, horizontally, by having multiple 
uh, cores uh, working in parallel. And this is exactly what we can do once we have this opcode. And the term that I like to use is enshrined rollup. So once mm -hmm. we've snarkified the, 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 the canonical instance of the EVM that we have today, we're going to have one enshrined rollup. And then once we add this opcode, we'll allow anyone to create as many enshrined rollups as they want. Okay. Well, uh, Brian, you've been sitting here waiting very patiently as, as Justin uh, eloquently described uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, this kind of holy grail. And uh, I think that you are working on that. Now, you're not working on that within the bounds of uh, sort of the, the Ethereum foundation and applying that to Ethereum mainnet, but you've got this, this project um, called Risk Zero that is actually pursuing the technology that is required to get us to uh, the promised land and everything that, that Justin just described. So, Brian, I'm, I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us, may, maybe first, I, I would love to get your kind of your reaction to what Justin just said and anything that that maybe triggers in your mind. And then we'll talk about what you're building out at uh, Risk Zero and this, um, th this platform that, that you're calling Zeth right now. But, but first of all, any reaction to what Justin just said? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, with all of the advances that we're making in cryptography, as you said, that you know the capabilities of Ethereum are just going to continue to compound and compound and, and uh, probably much faster than we would have seen or thought of even possible. So I, I think the future is very bright um, given all of the you know advances that are being made across the entire space. Uh, and this is just a you know one key in a very large puzzle. So it's very exciting. Okay, well, so tell us what you're building then on out on the frontier, which again is looks a little sci-fi uh, from our perspective, but seems to be at the same time also happening faster than many would have imagined at least um, many years ago. So, you, uh, your company is called Risk Zero, and you've got, I believe, this this platform called Zeth, and we describe this as a Type One zk EVM, and this goes kind of beyond what I even know I'm describing. So, like, what is what is Zeth? And what is a type one ZK EVM? Yeah, so Zeth is a, is an EVM implementation that's actually based on Reth, which is like Geth, an implementation of the EVM. However, it's one that's built um, using Rust. Uh, and it's a type one ZK EVM is simply one that can actually process the full nature of Ethereum in an entire block and prove, uh, effectively snarkify uh, an actual Ethereum block as opposed to some of the you know, other L2s that you have out there that have made various compromises in order to, um, in order to create uh, a more provable EVM. Uh, type 1 EVM makes no compromises and sticks to the original Ethereum specification, but still produces this snark that, that succinctly verifies that the EVM you know, computation was run correctly. So the other ZK EVMs that, that we've talked about many times before, the ones that Polygon are, are building, the ones that Matter Lab is building, the one that Scroll is, is building, uh, you'd differentiate that and you'd say that's not a type one EVM because it's a little bit different in some way. Can, can you, is that correct? And how is it different exactly? They're all different in different ways, um, and uh, they, you know they often change exactly how things get merkleized, how states stored, and they generally tend to implement all the opcodes. I don't know, Justin, do you want to expound upon that? Yeah. So generally speaking, what will happen is that they will want a Solidity developer and Solidity code to be reused. That's kind of one of the the main goals, and so they're going to re-implement every single opcode, but in you know be under the the hood under the bonnet 
they're going to be making some, some, taking some shortcuts to, to optimize things. And like one of the prime kind of shortcuts is to change the way that the, the storage is, is Merkleized. So today we have what's called a Patricia Merkle tree, which, which is using this Ketchak hash function. There's all sorts of technical terms just to say that we, the way that we handle storage is very much non-SNOC friendly. And so what these teams have done is they've just taken a completely different approach to authenticate and Merkleize the, 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 the state. Another possible difference is changing the gas schedule, right? Because the EVM gas was designed from the perspective of CPUs. If a certain operation takes, you know, 100 nanoseconds and another one takes 10 nanoseconds, then, you know, the first one should be kind of roughly 10 times more expensive from a gas perspective. But the gas schedules don't translate very well to snarkland. So you could have a very, very cheap instruction on the CPU, for example, you know, doing a, a hash like Ketchak uh, that's extremely fast on the CPU. But if you were to do it in snarkland, it's extremely expensive. And so in order to protect themselves uh, from these denial of service attacks where someone can craft a, a block with lots and lots of Ketchak and basically mount a denial of service attack on a specific uh, rollup, um, they've adjusted the gas schedule. So it's not exactly compatible with the EVM that we have today on mainnet at layer one. So because of those changes, because of those, um, you know, I guess optimizations or, or differences, uh, these type two ZK EVMs are not candidates to become an enshrined rollup, at least in their existing form. Is that correct? And, and this, a type one ZK EVM is closer to a candidate to becoming an enshrined rollup. Am I making that connection correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but what I'll say is that oftentimes, like these are journeys, right? They start somewhere and then they incrementally become more and more compliant with the EVM. Um, I mean, this even happened with optimistic rollups, right? At first they had these small modifications relative to the EVM opcodes. And then they said, no, we want to be exactly equivalent with the EVM opcodes. Um, and this journey is going to happen for the ZK EVM rollup implementations, I believe. And you know, part of the reason is that you get to benefit from a lot of tooling, from a lot of standards, from a lot of network effects. Um, but the, the, the trade-off here is that it's much, much harder from a technical standpoint. But what's, what's happening and is kind of magical to see in front of our eyes is that the technology is improving at an extremely fast pace. We kind of have an equivalent of Moore's law for snark improvements. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but it's something like, I don't know, improving by 4x every single year. So is give it a Drake's few more law? years. <laughs> Can we make a Drake's law here, please? I want a law. <laughs> like, well, we'd have the to Moore's kind of... law with another Moore's law on top of it. And then it's, <laughs> okay. Uh... Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is uh, about the limit of my technical proficiency here. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Justin, if you could sort of, like, what questions do you have for, for Brian here actually about how this works? So we're talking about you know, this type one ZK EVM. We've, we've fleshed out the rough contours of what this actually is, but I think this has an impact on a lot of things on, on bridges. Uh, we talked about enshrined rollups, multi-provers, 
you know, there's the performance conversation, security, licensing type of conversation. Uh, why don't you take some of the technical details here and, and maybe, uh, you know, I'll come back and ask the dumb questions as they arise in my mind. Perfect. Sounds great. Um, but I guess I do have one non-technical question, which is a little bit about context setting, which is that it seems like you guys were in stealth mode for a relatively long amount of time maybe you know a year or two and you know a few days ago when you made the announcement vitalik was messaging me and it's like, like who are these risk zero people you know are, are they you know are they are they doing good work can they be trusted etc cetera, etc cetera. and um you know if vitalik is not aware of you guys maybe the listener is not also not aware of you guys and so i guess my question is what prompted you in the first place to build a zkvm Normally, when you build ZKVM, it is because you're aiming towards a, a rollup, but my understanding is that you're not aiming towards a rollup. So what is the background here? Yeah, I mean, so Risk Zero got started with this idea of building out general purpose ZK uh, capabilities, so the ability to actually prove any computation. So not just the EVM, but like an existing game, you could prove Doom, you could prove um, Linux, people are actually using this to prove uh, the execution of Linux. So uh, ECC, not this past one, but two years ago, um, or two ECCs ago, I was talking about the fact that, you know, in my mind, the best way to build a, a ZKEVM was to actually just take the code that people have already written and then run it in this sort of general purpose context because you don't actually need to then engineer all these hundreds or of circuits. So it basically reduces the amount of capital required to actually run an EVM and produces a world where the, the proofs that you're creating are very much in line with the clients that created them. So um, yeah, I would say we've been thinking about doing this for a, a long time. It's just uh, getting the sort of technical requirement, getting the technical capabilities over the line to the point where we could do this, we really just got there like uh, two months ago. So then as soon as that happened, we're like, okay, now we have to actually try to make the EVM real, the type one EVM. And it turns out like it was, you know, fairly straightforward once we got the, you know, extra year of engineering done to get to get the sort of continuations and long running proof feature to work. And Brian, this is maybe the the flash of lightning that uh, Justin is referring to because it, um, Rosero just came across my radar last week as well. And, and David was like, hey, I'm going to be out. He's at Burning Man, actually. So he, I'm going to be out uh, next week. Ryan, you should go talk to um, talk to these people and, and, and see what's going on. And this is the tweet introducing Zeth, a fully open source type zero ZK EVM built on the risk zero ZK EVM and Bonsai Zeth is a performant upgradable and scalable way for developers to ZK prove any Ethereum block ushering in the next generation of ZK and EVM. So um, pretty, pretty big, uh, you know, tweet uh, thread to splash in the world. And uh, yeah, that, that's part of the context for this conversation. I'll plus one, Justin is like, we want to find out what you guys are doing. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, so the type zero thing is definitely a joke. So I, I, I might have rubbed some people the wrong way. But the idea is like, it's a type one EVM, but you didn't have to do you did zero work to make it work because we just utilized all the hard work of of everyone else in the space to create this that platform it's not entirely true we had to change some of the ways like the merkle patricia tree works to make sure it's like more snark friendly or stark friendly um 
and uh, and then we also had to modify a, a bit of the database backend. So so definitely required some brilliant work by some amazing engineers, but like a month and three people to get this over the line. Now, you know, there's tons of room to increase the performance of the system and all kinds of things like that, but we really have gotten to this kind of uh, base level of now we can actually ZK prove uh, Ethereum exactly as is. So if I were to summarize, um, it sounds like you guys started off very much as a technology company focused squarely on, on snarks and snarkifying the world. Um, and you have this really interesting approach, which I guess you know, we, should, we should dig into, very interesting technical approach. But in our, in our pre-call yesterday, um, one of the things you mentioned was that there was some sort of partnership maybe with another rollup projects, maybe the, the Optimism project. And that little piece of nugget was kind of interesting to me because it kind of what created the bridge between the technology company and more so like the, the crypto or the Ethereum company. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking to OP like on and off for a while because um, this idea that you can take ZK and sort of create fraud proofs. As soon as you can ZK prove something, you can also ZK prove that something is different than what other people said it is. So you have this kind of ability to automatically create a fraud proof if you if you have a ZK provable system. So we've been chatting with Optimism for a while. They eventually decided they were going to um, send out this like RFP or mission for uh, people to actually ZKify the OP stack. Um, and us and uh, Mina and a couple other teams all applied. And our, our solution was very much based on the preliminary work we'd done on Zeth. We realized rather than you know taking this very complex fraud proving system, which is an amazing work of engineering, but kind of sidestepped it and said, let's just take the OP ref um, like in development libraries and just create a way to ZK prove those, um, which effectively provides a fraud proof mechanism because now you can uh, prove, well, once it's done, which will be in, you know, nearish future, you'll be able to prove that an optimism block is or is not a different the, different from what the chain actually agreed on. So we're going to actually see, I think, in the near future through this partnership with optimism, the ability to get, um, you know, liquidity much faster than seven days or move your assets around and access your money. So, um, yeah. And this, is, this gets to sort of what you were saying about the magic of Snarks and being able to, you know, in the distant future, have Ethereum itself be fractally hyperscaled, however you want to say that. Right. So I, I think what is partially going on is that optimism as a project, which is, you know, an optimistic rollup, is thinking down the line of upgrading to a ZK rollup. And mm -hmm. they submitted this request for proposal where they're saying, okay, anyone in the world if you can help us snarkify optimism, we're going to give you money. Now, I had a look at the, the, the grant, um, kind of uh, the request for proposal, and it was 250,000 OP tokens, which at current price is about $375,000. Now, the reason I mentioned this is because if you had asked us, you know, two years ago to come up with a prototype, a proof of concept, for a type one ZK AVM with open source code running in, you know, on, on the cluster of GPUs, that would have cost millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. And for now, for half of a million dollars, you know, we have this new team coming forward and, and, and providing, you know, technology. And I think one of the key um, tools used here is, is abstraction, right? There's this kind of this massive shortcut 
that was taken. Um, and so there's, there's, there's kind of various pieces of the puzzle. And the, the way that I think about it is that there's, there's, there's three steps. Kind of you, you start with an existing FM client, in this case, uh, REF. And then there's this new intermediate step, uh, which is RISC-V, which I guess it would be good for you to describe what exactly is RISC-V. And then there's kind of this final step towards getting uh, a snark. And it, it, it seems like actually that there isn't much work going from the client to RISC-V, almost no work. And then same thing for going from RISC-V to the snark. So can, can you describe these three steps and the work involved in getting yeah. from one? And really quick, RISC-V, what is RISC-V? We know what RISC-0 yeah, so is, risk it's a company. Right. So RISC-0's name comes from RISC-V, and RISC-V is uh, it's an open source instruction set architecture for actual microprocessors. So if people are familiar with like the Apple M2 or ARM or x86 um, or MIPS, uh, you know, these are actually instruction sets. So similar to the EVM, they have opcodes um, that tend to be, you know, there are opcodes that can actually be reified in hardware in a reasonable manner. So um, x86 has you know, hundreds, thousands of them. So it's a complex instruction set architecture. But then you've seen the shift towards ARM and MIPS is very old, but RISC-V is kind of the spiritual successor to, to MIPS in a way. So it's a very small set. Uh, well, it has a couple different like dialects, but you can boil it down to about, I think only 40 something opcodes uh, at its core. So um, so what we've done is created a ZK VM. So it's not an EVM. It's, it's the same idea, except for what it does is process these much lower level instructions. Um, so there's not really pre-compiles or anything like that. There are escape patches that you can use. But um, so there's this core, uh, very minimal set of computing instructions that, that RISC-V um, sort of publishes. And people can actually take um, Sci-Fi, the company that invented it. You can just get a spec from them and you can put RISC-V cores into whatever project you're doing. So almost every computer that's shipping now does have some number of RISC-V cores somewhere in the sort of bigger chip. So most chips, any anything people think of as a CPU or a, anything like that is really a system on a chip that probably has you know 20 different cores in it. So anyway, <laughs> by doing all of this, we've, we've taken the ability to ZK proof something and said, we're going to be able to ZK prove anything you could run on a normal processor. Um, so the reason that sort of going, so going from uh, RISC-V to a, a ZK proving of RISC-V was something we, um, you know, surprised the ZK, the ZK world with at least about a year and a half ago when we, when we released this. I think, you know, the time Ellie had said that he, uh, Ellie Ben-Sasson from Starkware thought that, you know, general purpose ZK VM was at least five years out. So this is another example of ZK kind of just um, happening much faster than people would otherwise expect. So by focusing on this minimal set of instructions, we were able to create a very performant ZK VM. And most of the work to translate from anything else into RISC-V has already been done by the RISC-V development community and by the LLVM compiler community. So we're really just leveraging the network effects of open source software to take, as, as Justin said, a massive shortcut to, to get to ZK proof of, of Ethereum. So, so basically there's, there's two translation steps or kind of compilation steps that need to happen. And it turns out that the, the Rust programming language 
by default today already allows you to compile to a specific to, to various CPUs. So when you have a Rust program, you can compile it to x86, which is you know a lot of Intel machines run on this. You could compile it to ARM, which is a, a lot of the new Macs and a lot of phones run on ARM. But you can also compile it to this kind of this more arcane but still kind of popular enough to be supported uh, instruction set, which is called RISC-V. And so there's, there's basically all the work has been done to go from Rust, which is, uh, you know, for example, REF, which is written in Rust, to RISC-V. And then there's this one-time step that needs to be done to go from RISC-V to a SNOC. And this is the heavy lifting that Brian and his team have done, but it, it's a one-time thing. And so now we can kind of take any Rust program that we want and kind of reap the benefits of, of abstraction. So now what the, 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 the normal, the, the current, I guess the, the traditional paradigm for snarkifying things is to work very, very close to the metal, very, very low level, right? You, you have a program that you want to snarkify and you're going to kind of jump through lots of hoops and kind of work with these polynomials and you know, very low level programming languages partly because there isn't much tooling, but also partly because you need the performance of these really low-level optimizations. But one of the things that's happening is that we're getting more and more powerful abstractions, which means that as a developer, you can work with higher and higher-level pro programming languages, and Rust is an extremely kind of high-level and friendly programming language. And within the blockchain space specifically, it's extremely popular. Um, and in combination, we're finding all sorts of optimizations, both kind of at the software, at the hardware level, to make this palatable. Like it, you know, maybe we should move to performance, which is that back then, you know, we could have said, yes, you can go ahead and do it, but it will take, I know, days to produce a proof for an Ethereum block. What kind of performance do you guys have and, and how did you get there? Yeah, so the performance varies based on which kind of hardware, actual hardware target you're running the ZK VM on. So we support um, CPUs, we support um, the M2 GPU, and we support uh, NVIDIA uh, GPUs as well. Um, so getting to this level of performance has been um, a multi-stage journey. And honestly, there's a lot of room for us to, to get even more performance out of it. But one of the early choices, the reason we use this particular set, subset of RISC-V, the 32-bit instruction set, is because it lets us operate in the sort of smaller prime field, uh, which is much more amenable to being accelerated on GPUs. And specifically, and I think interesting to the sort of Ethereum space and blockchain in general, um, you know, this smaller field means you don't need these massive, crazy ZK proving rigs anymore. You can actually do ZK proofs using like a 16 gigabyte desktop GPU. Um, so that actually, so, so we built a proof system that could run in these really small kind of consumer grade cards. However, then that had some other kind of downsides, like you couldn't run giant programs. So we built this system called continuations, which uses, which is like folding, you've mentioned a bunch. Um, so it's a way to take a proof and split it up into a bunch of small proofs and then let a bunch of different parties effectively prove bits of them and roll them back up into, into one single proof. So getting to this level of performance, we had to optimize the recursion circuits because, you know, taking that 1024 proofs and rolling it down into one proof, you know, takes 10 vertical steps of recursion. Um, and 
then beyond that, we have this ability to actually run the proving computation itself, yeah, as I mentioned, on a GPU rather than a CPU. And we see pretty significant gains for that, but there's we're just really kind of scratching the surface because we haven't we focused on enabling everything, which is kind of our core thesis. Let's do the general purpose thing, let people actually prove something, and then we can focus on the performance where it matters. So um, yeah, so it's been a combination. On that, on that performance, so I'm um, just in kind of like the intros are exploring this um, th throughout the possibility that someday we could run an Ethereum, a snarkified uh, Ethereum validator from our smartwatch. It sounds like there are a lot of performance steps necessary to get there. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how close are we? So is what you're saying, Brian, that right now we could we could run what you've you've developed, which is this um, ZK uh type one EVM on a home consumer laptop. This is a pretty beefy laptop. And then how many steps away are we from getting that to like a, a smartwatch? Well, so proving, I don't think you're gonna, when, when you end up in this sort of enshrined roll-up world, you're not gonna have the proving be done on the smartwatch. The proving will be oh, done right. by these machines off in the cloud and, right. or in this decentralized network. And then the verification like because your snark or stark like they're really small the snarks especially and you know it, it takes literally fractions of a millisecond so the computing power to verify the snark is there and then once you have data availability sampling you know you really just don't need that much information to actually participate fully in the network so you can have a very light light client um, so then why, so then why do... does performance matter so much oh performance of um of the proving system yeah uh I mean, effectively, it gets down to how quickly you can make these sort of EVM blocks, right? Like right now, it takes us, um, if we use 64 of these off-the-shelf machines, it takes about 50 minutes. And I think there's probably an easy 10x there. But um, if you use even more machines, we can get down to 12 minutes. But realistically, if you want this sort of enshrined roll-up, you need to, what, what did you say, Justin, two seconds? If you want to, if the use case specifically is being a validator, then you want to, when a new block comes in, you want to know that it's valid you know, a second later. There's basically the, the latency, the proof latency, the time it takes to generate the proof should be on the order of one second. And today we're not there yet. We're, you know, maybe a hundred to a thousand X. So let's say 2.5 orders of magnitude away from, from getting there. And so performance matters for two key reasons. One is this proof latency that we, you know, for some use cases, we don't really need the low latency. But for other use cases, we do need the low latency. And the other reason is just diminishing the size of the prover. So nowadays, if you want to be a, a prover, more likely than not, you're going to you know, rent out a rig of GPUs on AWS. You know, Brian was talking about 64 GPUs, uh, I believe, on AWS. And that's not super friendly to a, a decentralized proving network uh, of people at home. And so... What we partially want to do as well is kind of shrink all these 64 GPUs into like a small box. And the way to get there, in my opinion, and I'd be curious what your opinion is, Brian, is to have snark acceleration. So we went from CPUs to GPUs, and then the end game is to go from GPUs to, to ASICs. Yeah, I mean, I think I still think even when you get to the ASIC level, you're still going to end up like when you have a huge decentralized network of, of provers, maybe these ASICs are even in people's phones, you're still going to end up splitting, um, you know, proving an entire ETH block probably up over, you know, hundreds or thousands of nodes. Um, so I think 
parallelism is critically important no matter what, but the ability now that we've sort of shrunk the requirements of the prover down to where it is, the I think the ability of hardware acceleration to really um, make a difference is actually there. I was pretty bearish on, on hardware for the first year of the company's existence because I didn't think uh, I didn't think that people were going to be able to do better than NVIDIA. It's really hard to do better than NVIDIA with their sort of GPU performance. But um, the stuff I've seen coming out of several hardware teams recently is really, um, I think there's going to be, uh, yeah, the ability to get to, you know, gigahertz level GPU, uh, sorry, gigahertz level ZK proving um, through ASICs in the, you know, five year time frame, let's say three to five years. Yeah. Okay, so if I were to try and summarize, you know, where does this performance come from, uh, which is just to, to, to recap, it's a, it's like a 10 minute, roughly speaking, 10 minutes to one hour proof latency comes from three different types of tricks. One is on the proof system itself, where you, you move to this different type of fi so-called finite field, which is 32 bits as opposed to something larger. You've leveraged the GPUs, uh, which, you know, as you said, NVIDIA does a great job with their GPUs, which are used for AI, but can also be used for, for snarks, which are also extremely compute intensive. And then there's this final really beautiful trick, which is basically recursion, where you take a big chunk of computation, you cut it up into much smaller chunks, and then you do the proving for each small chunk in parallel, and then you kind of reassemble all the pieces of the puzzle. And all of that can be parallelized and distributed. Very well said. Are you a MetaMask user? Well, you're listening to Bankless, so of course you are. The wallet you know and love just got a whole lot better. MetaMask Portfolio is the ultimate one-stop shop for all of your crypto needs. It gives you a holistic view of your crypto portfolio across multiple chains and multiple addresses all at once. You can easily view and manage all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one convenient place just by connecting your wallet. MetaMask Portfolio goes beyond just viewing your portfolio though. Inside the portfolio, you can do all the incredible money verbs that make DeFi so powerful. You can buy, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets with ease. It's like having a powerful battle station for all your DeFi moves right at your fingertips. So if you're looking to do more in Web3 your way, MetaMask Portfolio is the answer. I already know that you have MetaMask Wallet, so go check out your MetaMask Portfolio. Learn more at metamask.io slash portfolio. Introducing ETHX from Stator. ETHX is a liquid staking token designed to maximize rewards all while securing Ethereum. With Stator, you can run an Ethereum node with just four ETH, which is 85% lower capital and 35% higher returns versus just solo staking. Stator has a multi-pool architecture with both permissionless and permission node operators to enable decentralization and scalability. Stator has extensive experience in building liquid staking solutions on six proof-of-stake blockchains and is trusted by over 70,000 stakers. Stator has partnered with over 40 leading protocols on these chains to bring DeFi utility to their liquid staking tokens. Stator is actively building integrations and partnerships across Ethereum to bring the same great DeFi utility to the ETHX token. While smart contract bugs are always a risk in DeFi, the ETHX smart contract has received three independent audits and has a million dollar bug bounty with ImmuneFi. Go to statorlabs.com ETH stake to access the Stator staking protocol today. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. 
You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bakeless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. Now, I guess the the next big topic in my mind as, a, as an Ethereum researcher and thinking of, of Type 1 ZK AVMs is security, right? We have traditionally a lot of complexity going on here. And, you know, the likelihood for bugs is very, very high. And I have this saying, you know, which is maybe, I guess, a little arrogant, but... Uh, I believe that every single ZKVM has multiple critical vulnerabilities today. And so we need to be prepared as a community to either have like mitigations to these bugs, and there's a lot of very good ideas. And we also, unfortunately, need to be prepared to rollups getting hacked. Mm -hmm. uh, so just like we've had a bunch of fairly large rollup hacks, oh, sorry, bridge hacks on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, maybe close to a billion dollars. Uh, we could have multi-billion dollar hacks uh, in, the, in the ZK rollup space. And so I'm curious, how do you think of security and how do you think of removing every single bug from the system? Yeah, so obviously a huge topic. Um, so me and my co-founders actually know each other. We met 23 years ago in the Seattle like InfoSec scene. So we were all like hackers back in the day. So we have a pretty deep set of um, sort of experience and knowledge in this space. And um, that's part of the reason we chose RISC-5 also. It is actually has like, there's a full formal specification for it. You actually can prove that certain systems, formally prove that certain systems implement uh, RISC-5. We haven't gotten to that level of sort of formal verification with what we're doing yet. But you can imagine getting to the place where you have very strong guarantees that the ZK system itself is proving risk five and only risk five and that um, and that the sort of conjectured amount of security and number of bits of security is actually um, you know is actually what we think it is so there's a lot of work on the mathematical side to sort of prove that the crypto system itself is like the proving system is actually doing what it's supposed to separately you then need to audit as you mentioned, the actual ZK circuits. And I think that's an area where this approach really shines is that because the RISC-V instruction set itself is small, it means there's much less surface area to audit. Um, although we do have these sort of acceleration circuits um, that one can add on to the system, it still doesn't increase the sort of audit surface of the ZK part to, to the same degree that um, you know doing a ZK EVM from scratch would. Now, you're also, I think as you pointed out in the pre-call, by doing this, you're you are potentially onboarding a few more like security considerations for instance you're trusting the rust compiler and you're trusting llvm now these things and there are often you know bugs in llvm i think we just found um one the other day uh so you know compilers especially for new architectures aren't uh perfect but um this is one of the reasons again why we chose an existing architecture i don't think arm or something older or more mature would have really fit in a zk circuit 
But by choosing an existing architecture, we get to leverage all of the billions of dollars of investment that's gone into the security of this existing ecosystem. Gotcha. So if I were to summarize this kind of this final step where we go from risk five to a snark, which is actually fairly digestible because risk five is relatively simple. Actually, this reminds me of Cairo from Starkware. They have a, an even more kind of reduced instruction set, um, which is super simple. And what they've been able to do is apply some of formal verification tools to prove that you know, things are working properly there. And the hope is that this one-time investment, we can really drill down with powerful tools like formal verification and prove that it's correct. And then we kind of have the rest of the can of worms, uh, which is kind of this, this fairly complex compiler to go from Rust to RISC-V. And it's possible that you know, there's uh, bugs, generally speaking, in the Rust compiler, but it's also possible that there's bugs specific to compiling to RISC-V because RISC-V is one of the more niche instruction sets that you can compile to. Um, but what might happen is that we're going to start building these rollups, you know, which are securing billions and billions of dollars, and then Lindy starts to kick in. And you know, we might have bug bounty programs. And it's kind of interesting where, in a way, the blockchain space might make a huge contribution to compiler security. Absolutely. It's going to be way yeah. more eyes. We recently had this bug uh, right in the Viper compiler, and that caused a bunch of, of bugs. Um, and it would be great if we could apply kind of similar tools like formal verification to compilers like Rust compilers, which today sounds you know very grandiose, but maybe the blockchain use case is so security critical that we're going to try and move forward partially in that direction. Yeah, I mean people have done this for C, and if, if you're going to make if you're going to do formal verification for C, then you know Rust is probably also within the bounds of, of what's possible. But these efforts take decades or a really long time. But blockchain accelerates everything to an obscene degree. You know, ZK would still be like a niche academic pursuit, I think, if it weren't for blockchain needing it so badly. Yeah. Okay, great. So I guess the, the final kind of semi-technical topic that I have is around uh, licensing. Um, so if we are going to be using a piece of code, you know, at layer one, really for it to be kind of palatable, socially palatable, I guess, uh, the licensing needs to be good. And I guess the, the kind of favorite types of licenses that we, that we have might be Apache 2.0 and, and the MIT license. Can you discuss mm -hmm. what have you open sourced and under which licenses? Yeah, so the sort of core risk zero ZKVM, so the, the risk five proving engine, that's uh, licensed under the Apache 2 license right now, always has been. Um, and then Zeth itself will probably be Apache 2 slash MIT licensed. We might also end up MIT dual licensing everything because that's kind of the standard um, in the Rust community. Um, and and OP like is a fan of MIT. So um, so that's for the system that produces, you know, takes uh, the EVM program and chunks it up into a bunch of little proofs and then proves all of those. The parts we haven't yet open sourced or released is the part that actually takes all those proofs and recurses them down into a single proof. And then also this thing that converts the Stark that we use into a Snark. So there are two kind of aspects of this that we haven't launched. And effectively, we're waiting for these things to get through security audits because the, it, it's a, 
with the current system as is, you can't really, the proof is much too large to put on chain. So it's kind of hard to get wrecked because you can't actually use stuff on chain as readily. So right now, if people want to use the system, we have to get an API key from us, but that's definitely, um, you know, not the direction we're headed. We're very much committed to fully open sourcing the entire system, but we want to, we want to make sure we have, uh, you know, high, high confidence that people are not going to, um, get wrecked soon because of the ZK system. Okay, understood. So you've open sourced like several key components under a very attractive license, Apache 2.0, and you're thinking of dual licensing it maybe with MIT so you can choose which license you want when you start using the code. And like part of the prover is already open source, but maybe some of the final things involving the recursion and kind of the wrapping it into a tiny, tiny proof so that it can be consumed on chain, that's not yet open source. Exactly. So Brian, um, risk risk zero seems to have come out of nowhere, and uh, you know it's it's super incredible how fast all this is coming to to um, to bear here, and um, like open source um, working. It sounds like first to to kind of snarkify our favorite L2s out there, like working with Optimism and and others. So I imagine that's going to be a bulk of the work at first. Um, what are you guys planning to do here? Like, what's the business model for for Risk Zero? Um, it almost sounds like what you're producing is is a public good. And here, you're Justin and I and the rest of the bankless community are kind of you know cheering you on. But uh, I'm sure you have investors. I'm sure you have VCs here that have you know put you put some money in, and uh, they're going to expect some kind of return. Yet you're not building a layer to yourself as of as of yet it sounds like so or maybe you will uh so yeah t tell us what risk zero is, is put on earth to to do what do you what are you planning to do in this space yeah um in this space we're really focused on this bonsai zk application development platform so there's something we've been working on for a while um because you can use zk for all kinds of things i don't know how if you've talked uh to like many of the ZK co-processing teams, but you can use Bonsai effectively as a ZK co-processor, which lets you run a bunch of complex logic off-chain and then just attest to it on-chain. So we, like Denver, I talked about a like a L1 club, effectively running an order book on Ethereum directly at Uniswap. You can achieve roughly Uniswap level pricing um, by doing all of the order book matching off-chain. So you have your orders, the orders get placed on-chain, and then Bonsai sort of just reads those orders, does all the matching uh, in ZK just on one machine, some and ran any random corner of the internet or AWS or wherever you want it to be, and then says, "Okay, here's proof that these are the orders that got matched at this price." And so, so this thing, Bonsai, Bonsai is kind of a platform for Z, zk snarkifying apps, maybe. Yeah. Let's call it apps and uh, rollups, uh, anything really. So we expect um, right now it's a centralized SaaS offering, and we think there's long-term value and sort of providing an enterprise sort of open core uh, model there, but we will definitely be um, building a decentralized network around that as well. Exactly what that looks like, um, who knows? It's going to be very focused on um, on the sort of core accounting for proving uh, tasks. So kind of like a proof marketplace, but we expect that it will add uh, interesting features for application developers over time. Because there's an ability with continuations to do sort of ZK Docker. You can prove something up to a certain point, you can suspend the thing, and then you can just keep going on later. So you can kind of imagine having a ready-to-go EVM image where people can just uh, resume it and they have a, like full access to the Ethereum state. Is, like is, 
is this like a sort of a an AWS for zk proofs uh, yeah. kind of thing, or it's just like a marketplace here, and and yeah, you're looking to try to make it as decentralized as possible? That that could be a future here. Definitely. I mean, this is like when we got into. I mean, Jeremy or G scientist is just always into AI and zk and all of these things. But when we started really thinking about what we're going to do with it, the thing that really got me excited was um, was the potential of this technology to kind of let people who are building infrastructure and applications not need to rely on, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google for everything. So this is the idea that we could actually fully decentralize um, the sort of infrastructure that goes into many of the applications we use has always been really appealing um, part of like what this technology is capable of. So I think Bonsai is going to be a platform that helps people do that. So Brian, what, what do you think happens next in kind of the roadmap? So all of this it seems to be happening faster than than we all thought it would, which is uh, so incredibly exciting. The level of investment in the space and, and the level of talent in you know brains now being focused on crypto is just uh, absolutely astounding. We we almost ep- ended the episode with kind of the one one of the last you know parts, which I think is. Um, of course, the the public good that is Ethereum mainnet kind of that will upgrade to a fully snarkified enshrined uh, zk EVM probably last. Right, we're we're going to want this fully proved out in uh, all sorts of ways across crypto before we get to that stage. So I'm wondering, what do you think will happen in the in the interim over the next six months, over the next you know one to two years? How do you think the tech that you're building will start to in, impact uh, the crypto landscape? Will we just see, you know, um, ZK snark, snarkified layer two? Should we expect to see this technology uh, applied mainly in rollups? Are there, are there apps that you, you see this being applied or, or um, will it take the, a few years? Yeah. All of the above. Um, we're definitely working with, um, you know, L2s, L3s, um, rollout frameworks, however you want to think about all of that space. Um, and also, you know, we're working with people on DeFi projects and uh, eventually gaming is going to be a big part of this. The way I see this playing out is, you know, just like friend.tech kind of surprised everybody with how much better the crypto onboarding experience has become. And sure, there's still a lot of room to go. I think the the head, like the headway that people have been making and making crypto applications easier for people to use is going to then also increase demand for the capabilities of these systems to be, um, you know, to be able to do more and more interesting things. So I think we'll see ZK playing a critical part in, in all of this by enabling people to do whatever computations they want off chain and readily attest to them on chain. So the sort of ZK co-processing architecture is going to be a huge unlock for applications built and yeah, for Web3 applications. Well, this has been great. Uh, Justin, do you have any other questions for, for Brian or should we uh, start to close this out here? I think I have one uh, final question, which is around you know, your alignment with Ethereum. Like I think we had, a, a, you know, during the prequel, it sounded like as an individual, as a, as a person, you were in this space for quite a long time and you, know, you have a certain set of beliefs. And I'm curious what those are, but also how this translates into the, the culture of the company. Yeah, uh, I mean, our sort of core, three core values are like integrity, transparency, and, and agency. And I think, uh, you know, if those aren't like Ethereum aligned, I'm not really sure what that sort of even means. So coming out of the sort of hacker culture that, um, you know, the founders came from, uh, it just seems like a very natural sort of fit to the to the sort of ethos of Ethereum. So I think 
value-wise. Yeah, we're really, the the vision of the sort of hyper-structure world of the future is, is very much something we all resonate, like very deeply resonates with all of us. Brian, what first brought you down the crypto rabbit hole? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, buying supplies for Burning Man. <laughs> it's funny as my co-host is literally at burning man right now <laughs> fantastic um no but it's it's been a crazy journey and so it's, it's really fun to get more and more into the space yeah well very good and uh and maybe my last question is is uh, is kind of the high level um to to justin uh so this idea of hyperscaling ethereum using kind of like fractal um you know crypto proofs, ZK proofs on top of ZK proofs. I mean, has this always been part of the plan or is this just happenstance? And yeah, I guess when you think of the term hyperscaling, how do you envision looking, um, how, how do you envision Ethereum looking you know, five years from now? Is all of this stuff just kind of working and what's what's the total transactions per second? I, I don't know, what's, what's the sci-fi Ethereum with this tech applied? How does that look, Justin? Right, so, I mean, if you wanna think in terms of end games and, and, and fundamentals, you, know, you go back to these fundamental resources, computation, that's just not going to be a problem of consensus. And the, the way that I think about it is that consensus is this very flexible tool that can solve all sorts of problems. And then cryptography, what it does, it kind of, it gives you a few superpowers that allows you to reduce the scope of consensus and basically have more and more crypto and less and less economics, if you will. Um, and historically, actually one of the big breakthroughs for consensus was simple message authentication and signatures, right? That kind of changed the model where uh, you had you know, these messages that could be intercepted and modified, but that didn't really matter because they were kind of signed and authenticated. And so the model was, what can you do with consensus given signatures? And now we kind of have this, uh, this new tool, which is much more powerful from a cryptographic standpoint, which is what can you do with consensus with snocks? Um, and it turns out that like the things that it needs to solve are, are, are data availability and, and finality. And it turns out that data availability is something that we can solve with, with data availability sampling, as I mentioned. And then there's this other thing, finality, which I only re discovered recently, you can also solve with cryptography, with these really, really sophisticated uh, pieces of cryptography called one-shot signatures, which actually marry quantum mechanics and cryptography. And so then you can ask yourselves, okay, what is consensus useful if you know cryptography solves all these things well it turns out that the last thing that's still not solved is this concept of liveness like how do you make sure that the chain just keeps on going even if like validators just you know don't show up for example if there's world war three and 90 percent of the population has has gone and this is kind of cool because we're reducing and reducing and reducing the scope of consensus and we're kind of hardening the rest with pure cryptography and, and physics and mathematics. Um, it's a very long journey to get the one-shot signatures because we need these quantum computers. But in the meantime, we're going to enjoy the spoils of, of snarks, which are extremely significant. Well, it seems like we have entered the the snark era for sure. And there's going to be a lot of that applied to crypto in the future. So. Brian, Justin, thank you so much for, for guiding us on the tour today. It's been much appreciated. Thank you.
Thank you. Bankless Nation, risks and disclaimers. Gotta let you know, of course, none of this has been financial advice. I don't even think we talked price in this whole episode, so obviously not. Crypto is risky, so are compilers, so are new layer twos. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.